0: I read this book a while ago called 50 inventions that shaped the modern economy, really good uh, interesting book, and it talks about several different inventions that maybe you wouldn't expect that had a lot of power to drastically change things but actually have fundamentally changed shaped our economy but really then our our country our our world in a lot of different ways and One of them, uh, I'll give you kind of the backstory. in 1862 in America there was the Homestead Act, which really everybody was mainly kind of in the east, in the east coast, some in the south, but looking at the western frontier and saying, there's a lot of open land there, there's a lot of open space there, there's a lot of possibility of what could happen. And they actually gave people land. They said, if you go out there, you can, it was different words that they used, the land grab and different things like that to say, you, you can have it. It's, it's yours. You just got to go there. You got to settle it. You got to farm it and it's yours. But it was a lot more difficult than that sounded. It was a lot more uh, treacherous than that sounded. And it was, especially when you're thinking kind of from the East, going through the Midwest, just they would call it the desert. It was just this empty, open land. If you've ever driven through there, you know what, a little bit what that's like. But imagine even before that all the corn was planted. It wasn't just cornfields. It was just emptiness and barrenness. And people were like, uh, that's kind of hard to get from here all the way to maybe the west. That, that's difficult. It wasn't as easy as it sounded. And there's an invention that somebody came up with. Or I already kind of just told you that. But there's an invention that somebody came up with, this man here called barbed wire. And barbed wire, even though that seems like just a really basic thing, barbed wire significantly changed the entire country and the entire economy. Because what it allowed people to do was to actually plant stuff. There wasn't a bunch of trees. There wasn't a bunch of free wood just laying around. It allowed them to actually create sections of land that were theirs that could be farmed. It allowed them to keep people off, to keep animals or, or dangerous things away, and to create a space of land cheaply that was theirs. And when it was advertised, it was advertised as the, the greatest invention the world's ever seen. It was advertised, I love this little line, lighter than air, stronger than whiskey, cheaper than dust. That was their marketing. That's great marketing for barbed wire. And it changed. It really, in a lot of ways, created even the notion in America of private property, to say, this is mine. This isn't just this expansive, open space. This is mine. It made it so that they could settle. It made it so that people could move out to the West. There wouldn't be a California if it weren't for barbed wire. There wouldn't be a Silicon Valley. You wouldn't have an Apple phone or a Mac. You wouldn't have shows that come out of Hollywood. So maybe barbed wire has ruined us, but the other thing... <laughs> But in some ways, barbed wire, it changed everything. It changed the economy. It was a powerful tool that exists. And yet, you've probably seen barbed wire and you've overlooked it. You've never probably walked by it and gone, wow, that changed everything. I owe so much to this steel. It's changed everything. You probably don't feel that way, right? It was a powerful thing and yet small and yet affected so many different things and yet we easily overlook it. Now, if that's true with something small, like barbed wire, how much more true is it of what God can do in your life with his power? Barbed wire is a small little thing and yet had a lot of power to significantly change the landscape of our country. If that's true about barbed wire, how much more true is it about the power of God and what it could do, what pervasive effects it could have in our life that we can't even think about. We sometimes think about God's power in a really limited way of the specific function that it is for, like barbed wire, okay, it creates a a, a barrier, and yet because of it, it affected so many different things. The same is true with God's power. It can change so many things in our life, and yet, like barbed wire, we often overlook it. We often just kind of pass by it and say, yeah, 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 God and his power and Yeah, I know it's there. Where do you feel in your life right now that you need or you would like God's power to show up? If you had more of God's power in your relationships, in your family, in your marriage, in your health, in your emotions, what would happen if you had more of God's power showing up? What could it do in your life? Christianity So if you're new to Christianity, this this will be a great kind of overview for you of really just what the Christian message is about. If you have been a Christian for a long time or have been a Christian for a while, like barbed wire, we often overlook because Christianity claims to have a power that's bigger than barbed wire, that can change every part of your life and the lives around you. It claims to have a significant power. Yet oftentimes we struggle to access that power. It's like a big pile of barbed wire that's just kind of laying there but unused. We overlook what God can do. It's there, his power is there, it's present. We may know about it, but we don't use it in the ways that we could. We don't use it in the ways that are needed. And and to I'll move on from barbed wire in a second. But but to think about our life as being an expanse of Open, open prairie possibility. If we don't use God's power in our life, it just stays as this open desert, untamed. And yet there is so much potential of what God can do in your family, in your kids, in your work, in, your, in, in everything when we use God's power, when it is available to us. So I want you to think about this just as we start. What, what if God's power was available to you In what you face, in your sin, in your suffering, what if God's power was available to you more and more than you experience now? In your serving and helping of other people, what if God's power was more present? Now the core idea of how we can articulate or experience God's power that we're going to look at today is a word that probably you've heard, it's a word, salvation. And that word, salvation, is some, sometimes a word that is so overused that we don't really even know what it's talking about. You've probably seen signs that say, Jesus saves, and many people will say, Jesus is my savior. And it's kind of a, a common language, a common, just uh, something that is so basic, and yet sometimes then that makes it like barbed wire that we miss the power of what that means. And so we're gonna explore together salvation and how that power, whether for the first time or the more and more that we are able to access and use it, that it brings transformation in our life. So we have to start with this, which is what are we saved from? What is our condition? It's difficult to talk about salvation if we don't know what we are saved from. And I don't know if you've ever seen a movie where there's some, or you can at least imagine, some, or maybe you've been through it, if you, particularly maybe if you are from uh, the Midwest, and there's like a, a tornado or something like that, and people are hunkered down in a basement, and there's all this kind of stuff happening outside, and, the, and the, the camera, if it's a movie, might cut from all this devastation that's happening out there, and then to the people inside kind of hunkering down, and then there's a moment of peace and quiet, and then people kind of it's over. Parents might feel like that when their kids finally take a nap and you're like, oh, it's over. Okay. But when it, when it's just kind of chaos outside and then you kind of just go, all right, it's over. But that feeling of relief, that feeling of peace, that feeling of rest, that feeling of it's over doesn't mean much if you don't know the devastation, if you don't know the horror, if you don't know what was happening dangerously outside. And so we have to talk about what we are saved from if we want to be able to experience the, "Ah, it's over feeling. If we want to understand some of the power of salvation, we have to know how bad it was first. And I preface that for you to say this next section that we're going to spend some time in might be painful for some of you. It might hurt. It might offend you. It might feel not very encouraging. If you listen to Christian radio on the way over here and you heard that it's supposed to be positive and encouraging, it might not feel at all like that. But it's the only way that we can actually go, "Ah, it's over, is if we know, what we're actually saved from. Salvation means nothing if you don't know what you're saved from. It's over means nothing if you don't know what the tornado was doing and can do. So we're gonna jump into to this section in Ephesians. And here's what it says. And you were dead, good positive note to start off with, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. This helps us see what we are saved from. Now, everybody knows there's something wrong with the world, right? Most people don't just scroll through the headlines and go, everything is awesome. We, we know there's something wrong with the world. And it depends kind of what your tradition is, what your background is, maybe even your religious views on what that something is. We might articulate it differently, but most people would say, yeah, everything isn't great. There is something wrong with the world. When we see the pain, the sickness, the brokenness, the injustices, the, the hurt, the, the murder, I mean, all the different, we go, yes, yeah, something's wrong in the world. Now, a lot of people would say this, though. A lot of people would say, we are basically good. Humans are basically good people. And what's wrong with the world is we just need more education. People are ignorant. We need to educate people more. Maybe we just need more, better laws and government. People need to be ruled better. We're basically good, but we need to be guided along. Some people may say that we are basically good, but we are wounded, we are hurt, we have trauma from other people, and that's kind of we're acting out of that place. We just need to kind of feel better about ourselves or, or have a greater understanding of our brokenness and, and then we'll be okay. There's a lot of different things that could be said, but the Bible diagnoses our condition very different from just saying we're all basically good. It says we are dead. Now that's harsh language. That's offensive language. Can people do good things? Yes. Are people kind and nice? And can even people that are atheists and don't believe in God do good things? Yes, absolutely. But the Bible says that our fundamental condition apart from God is that we are dead, not just ignorant, not just broken, not just wounded, not just hurt, but we are dead. We are dead to what, and obviously we're physically alive, but we are dead to what matters most. We're dead to what matters most. And, and this word, dead, it may be helpful to think less about good and bad, even though that that is true. People can be good and bad. It may be helpful to think less about good and bad, though, and think more about our posture and our relation to God, that we are dead to God. We are indifferent to God. We are not alive to who God is. I love the definition of sin that comes from the New City Catechism. It says this, what is sin? And think about how this is fundamentally our orientation to God, not just good and bad things. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death, and the disintegration of all creation. This is a helpful definition that's combining a lot of what the Bible teaches and says it isn't just good things and bad things. That's a part of it when we when we don't do or be what he requires in his law, but it's fundamentally our death is our posture to God. We reject him outright or we just ignore him. We just live our life. And this is why you could actually, in some sense, live a good life, but we live our life without reference to him. We're just living our life. That is what the Bible means when it talks about dead. And if you think about it, if, God, if it's true that God is your creator, if it's true that God has made you, he has designed you, you are his, we belong to him, we are created to be in relationship with him, and even if we live good, but don't live with reference to him, or we reject him, or ignore him, that in and of itself, we know intuitively, is actually the worst kind of sin. And here's an example of that. If you were a very, I'll just say son, because I'm a son, but if you're a woman, you can think daughter. If you were a very good son, meaning that you have, let's just say you've, you've lived a good life. You were, you were a good husband, good father, worked a job, were generous, donated your money to things that were uh, important in the world, served people, helped people. You lived a good life, but you totally rejected and ignored your mom. Not because of anything she did, not because she's an awful abusive parent, but you just said, "Nah, I'm just done with you. Even though she created you, She made you. In some sense, you belong to her. And you just said, I don't care about you. I'm going to be a good person and live my life totally rejecting you. No one would say, that is a good person. We would say, yeah, you are living and doing some good things, but there's something fundamentally wrong with you if you have just totally rejected and ignored this person. Now, again, I know we are imperfect humans, so you may have broken relationships with your parents and you say, I have good reason for rejection. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God, who is perfect. I can just say, I, I think I've said this before, but like, there's pretty much anything I could do. My mom would be like, well, you probably had a good reason for it. If I killed somebody, she would probably say, well, do you need help burying the body? And he, I, he has a good heart, is what she would say, you know? But if I don't call my mom, I'm the worst person. If, I, if a couple weeks go by and I've forgotten to call my mom, or if I just said, you know what, not calling you on Mother's Day anymore, she would probably call the police. She would say something, you are evil, you are awful. Because we know there's supposed to be a connection there. And the Bible says that sin or death, our fundamental condition, is we have rejected God. We've ignored God. We've lived without reference to God that's what we are saved from, but it it gets worse than that. It says that we are dead, and then it also says that within this world that we live in, we are led away continually from God. Three different ways that uh, are classified often by theologians for a long time in the church that the Bible gives to us in different passages. This one kind of puts it all there, but the world, the flesh. In the devil, three different ways that we are led away from God. The first being the world. It says we are dead and that we walked according to the ways of this world. So part of our condition, part of what is wrong with us, part of what we need to be saved from is that we walk according to the ways of this world. We walk according to the ways of this world. Think about how whole value systems get embedded into cultures and into ages. Whole value systems that are against God. That we think if we're walking according to the ways of this world, the ways of this world means that's what's normal according to this place in this time. If it's the ways of this world, the world in that age, in that location, doesn't think anything's wrong with it. It's just the ways of the world. It's how things are done. And sometimes it's only in reference later that we can look back and go, that's messed up. Sometimes it's only when we're removed from it that we're able to say the ways of the world at that point in time and that location were really messed up. But when people lived in it, they just said, this is normal. Think about slavery. That nobody today in America, well, I know there are wackos, so I guess I should take that back. But most people today would say, Totally messed up wrong and we see it with clarity and yet the ways of the world at the time a Lot of people the majority of people at various points said this is just the way things are. It's just normal Think about the caste system in a place like India where there are certain levels of people and you really can't marry Outside of that there's certain positions and work that can't go outside of that to them totally normal but we would say that's messed up. That if we classified front row, actually it'd probably be more like back row. Those are the best people. Front row, sorry, you've got to be in the front row. Something's wrong with you. If we classified that, we would think that was crazy if next Sunday you showed up and that's how it was. There's a lot of various systems, ways of the world that have happened. Think about even... uh, uh, in places like in America or Western Europe when it was normal for kids to be working in coal mines. That was totally normal. Little children working in coal mines. Doesn't that blow your mind? But that was just the norm. Now we would think adults probably working in coal mines is like, oh, I'm sorry, dude. But a little five-year-old would be like, hi-ho, hi-ho, <laughs> you know? That's the seven dwarfs, I think. Um, The ways of this world. So sometimes it's only over here that we can look and go, that was messed up. But let's be smart. Don't you think there's things now that we are living in that we just say this is normal, and yet really it's the ways of this world? See, the only way to actually know, what is the ways of this world? There's only two ways. You either wait 100 years or so and look back on it, but that's probably going to be difficult for most of you, or you have to allow the Bible to tell us, here is what God says is my way, and that judges therefore all times and all places and all generations saying, these are the ways of the world, these are my ways. See, we live. there's, there's a lot of ways of the world that we could talk about today, but I'll give you a couple. We live in an age where self-fulfillment is the ultimate thing. We live in an age where to fulfill ourselves, be true to ourselves, follow our hearts, if it's right to me, it's right to me. No one else can tell me what's wrong for me. The ultimate goal in life is for me to be happy. That is different from previous ages, and it's not the Bible's vision. We live in a day and age where after the 60s was called the sexual revolution, where all types of sexual activity is good. And we talk about a term today called sexual positivity. Whatever you do sexually is good as long as there's consent. That's new in the history of the world. It's not the Bible's vision. We live in an age of the therapeutic self where the truest me is what I feel. Not who I've been created to be, not who I've been designed to be by God, but my feelings are the real me. That, again, is new in the history of the world. These are the ways of this world that 100 years from now will feel weird. 100 years ago felt weird. We live in a super materialistic culture. Think about Amazon. And we all use Amazon, so I'm not trying to, you know, like burn it down. That's, this isn't like a, a communist rally. But, but think about Amazon. We, it, it is part of our culture that we just, I want it, I want it, I want it now. Give it to me now. If it's not here, if it's not instant, it's late. That, that's new. And it's part of this materialism that we just want stuff so bad. hundred years ago, that wasn't the case. So there are the ways of this world that we walk in, where the patterns and the value systems in the world become so normal, we can't even see them. We are like a fish that we say, if you ask a fish, this, I didn't make this up, but if you ask a fish, how's the water, they will say, what's water? Because it's just our norm. We just live in it. And we need the Bible to be able to actually help us see. What are the ways of this world? We are often led by the ways of the world without even knowing it. And it's not just the ways of this world. We are also led by Satan. It says, we walked in the ways of this world according to the ruler of the power of the air. That's Satan, the spirit now working in the disobedient. This tells us that it's not just the ways of this world that influence us, that enslave us, that lead us, but it's also Satan, the devil, the ruler of the power of this air. And I know that's kind of a, a weird language for Satan, the power of the air. But think about air. Part of what air means is it's everywhere. Sometimes we say something like, it's, I can feel it in the air. And that, that song, I can feel it in the air tonight. Boom, 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 boom. And then it gets that cool thing, right? That's, that's what this is. Air means it's everywhere. You might say love is in the air. Excitement is in the air. To talk about the power of the air is to say his influence is everywhere. His influence is everywhere. We don't want to, under every kind of nook and cranny, say, oh, you know, Satan made me do it, or Satan caused this to happen. We don't want to say that. But Satan is working. The spirit now working in the disobedient. Satan's not lazy. Satan doesn't take a day off. He is working to tempt you. He is working to deceive you. He is working to try to lead you, to lie to you. He is working. He's doing that. There is a real enemy. Some of you may feel that, that why is this so difficult? Why is this so hard? Why does this feel like something that is beyond normal? It may be that it is the spirit now working. It is the power of the air, his influence to lead you. Away from what God has. And then the third thing that we are led by, the Bible says, is the flesh. He says, we previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. When the Bible uses the term flesh, it just means those desires and inclinations inside of us that we follow. We can't say that everything is the world. We can't say that everything is Satan. I heard kind of a, a story that a pastor told where uh, a kid was fighting with their sibling and the mom said, why did, you let, why did you let Satan make you trip your sister? He said, well, I did let Satan make me trip my sister, but it was my idea to pull her hair. I'm like, okay, yes, that's often how it is. It's Satan might influence us to certain things. The world might influence us to certain things. But we also have our own desires, our own inclinations, our own thoughts that we follow. And the hard part about this is when you think about some of those words, desires, inclinations, our thoughts, those things that come within us, we're often told that that's exactly what we're supposed to follow. We're often told that that's what's good. What do you think? What are your desires? What are your inclinations? What do you want? Go with that. And yet the Bible says here that's actually one of the deepest problems that we have that leads us astray from God is that we follow our inclinations, our desires, our thoughts, our passions. We follow those and they lead us away from what God has. Instead of saying, What does God want? What does God say? What does God think? What are God's desires? What is God's heart? What are God's passions? What is God's will? What is God made? How is God designed things? What does God's word say? What does God lead me in? Instead of that, we say, What do I want and think and feel? But you see, those are very different ways of operating, and yet often we're told to follow our inclinations and desires and thoughts. And that, that will lead us positively. Even think about your life. Where might there be things? And most people probably have something like this. Where might there be things in your life where you know, get, I mean, no one's gonna test you right now, so get rid of kind of excuses or yeah, buts or where you know what the Bible says about something, but you say, yeah, but I want to do this or but I feel this, but I think this. Those places. That's what the Bible means when we are led away by the flesh. So we are saved from these things. And then finally, ultimately, the condition is that we are under wrath. We are destined for wrath. Sin is a choice, it is something we do. But the Bible also says that it's a condition that we have, that we are born with a sinful nature, that by nature, we are children of wrath. By nature, inside of us, we start with a disposition not to be serial killers, but we start with a disposition to reject, ignore, live without reference to God. That's how we start, that is our nature which does often lead to selfish things and bad things, parents know that you don't have to teach your kids to be selfish. Some of their first words, mommy, daddy, mine. Some of their first words, right? You don't have to teach them some of those things. Sometimes you see your kids do things to one another, to other kids, and you're like, I've never done that. I didn't teach them that. We are born children of wrath we are born the one of the the ways that theologians talk about this this is the doctrine of total depravity which doesn't mean we are as bad as we could be but it means in totality all of us our mind our hearts our wills our bodies our affections it's totally affected by sin it's totally affected by rejecting and ignoring God that's where we start And because of that, we are deserving of God's wrath. Wrath is a word we don't like. Wrath is a word we don't use. But wrath means God's justice against evil. Which again, we don't like that word, especially if it's paired with children. We don't like that word. But it actually communicates something very encouraging which is God won't stand for evil. God won't stand for injustice. God won't stand for the sins that have been done against you and have done against others. He won't stand for it. God sets things right. God brings his judgment to bear, to restore, to fix all things. And we are destined for wrath. It comes to all apart from him. Now, here's what this means. The problem of our world, the problem with you and with me, is worse than we often think it is. The problem is worse. It's not just that we need more education or we need more laws. I'm not saying those things are bad, but it's not just that we need those things. The problem is much worse. We are dead, we are destined for wrath, we are dominated. By the world, the flesh, the devil. You might feel, yeah, that's a lot against me. That's a lot that I face. That's a lot that's happening. So that's all the bad news. What are we saved to? What are we saved for, we could say? Because all of that is bad. And I know that that's heavy. That's not, you know, maybe if you said, I really need to get some encouragement today. I'm going to go to church. All of that starts really heavy. But the more that we see that, the more that we feel that, the more that we understand that, the more that the good news is the good news. The more that you understand the tornado, the more you are able to go, it's over. That might be how you feel when this sermon is done. It's just, ah, oh, it's over. That the more that you understand the bad news, the more you can experience the good news. It's kind of like a trampoline. The, the deeper that you go down, the higher that you go up, right? If you just kind of give a little bounce, you're like, woo, this is fun. But if you're trying to, you know, sometimes if you're like maybe with your nieces or nephews or if you have kids and you go, All right, let me show you this. And you jump really deep and go down low and then they go, whoa! I'm flying off, and you're like, that's what I can do. That's fun, right? The deeper that you go down, the higher that you go up, the more joy that you actually are able to experience. I know another pastor that broke his daughter's arm doing that, but, um, you know, that happens. <clears throat> and so, what is it that we are saved to? Look at this next section. But God, who is rich in mercy, Because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Look at all the different things that it says here of what he moved us from to. That we were dead and he gave us life. That we were dominated, enslaved, living according to the world, the flesh and the devil, and now we're seated with him. I saw one person say we moved from enslaved to enthroned. And I love that language to say that we were dominated by this, but we're free now, free to a place where we are with him. We are children of disobedience, and now we are with Christ. That's a, that's a big difference. We are walking in sin, it said. That was the, the patterns that we lived in. And now he actually allows us to walk in good works. We go from kind of a meaningless life where we are using our life engaged in things that harm and hurt to now actually walking in the purpose that God designed us for. We go from wrath as our destiny to salvation as our destiny. This is the transference of what God does. Life with him, freedom, connected to him, purpose with him now and a future of resurrection. That is what God moves us into. And sometimes we think about salvation. And I've even heard this illustration before. We think about salvation as God rescuing us from a burning building. Now, there's some truth to that because if you just look at this, that's a burning building. And he goes, what is salvation? And you only think about the saved from salvation. It's a burning building that God rescues us from. He's the fireman that comes in. He sacrifices his own life to rescue us out of the burning building. Okay, true enough, but it's so much more than that. It's not just that he rescues us from a burning building, but then he brings you into a palace. He brings you not just out of a burning building to live on the street. He takes you out of a burning building and puts you into something much greater. He gives you a palace. He gives you a family. He gives you a future. So much more than just rescue from death. It's all that he gives to us. This is why, also, the theologians talk about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which means that once God has done this for you and to you, it's not going anywhere. You can't now revert back to this. God gives this to you, he brings you into a new condition, and it's sealed, it's yours. It's something that can never be taken away from you. So when you think about in your life where you need power, I don't know where that is. Where where do you feel like you need power, God's power in your life? Looking at this helps us know that God transforms. God's power. This, This is a big picture of what God's power can do. To say God's power can move death to life. God's power can move living in a totally different way where you are dominated to freedom. God's power takes enemies and makes them children. God's power changes things radically. So where do you need power? You know what kind of power, if you know this, that this can give to you? If you've got questions... Maybe you're suffering, you're confused. Why does God allow this? Why is God letting this happen? One of the things that this can do, one of the ways that this can give you power is to say, remember, you know what God's intentions are for you. You know what God's plan is for you. Yeah, there's suffering. Yes, you're confused. Yes, you don't get it. But we know what God's plan is. You know what his heart is. You know what his design is, where he's leading you, where he has led you. This gives us power when we feel hopeless. Do you feel hopeless at all? You look at certain situations in your life where you're stuck, where things around you are stuck and you feel like, I don't know how this could change. Maybe you've given it all you've got and it wasn't good enough and you feel like it's hopeless. This gives you a power because it helps you see, yeah, but what can God do? Look what he can do. He is the master of moving from death to life. He is the master from making those that are destined to wrath have a future eternal glory of salvation. This can help you when you feel like you are drawn away from God. When other things look very appealing. When other things in the world or that Satan is influencing you towards or your own flesh and inclinations and thoughts are drawing you to. When there's things that you are drawn to This can help remind you, God is good. Even though these these things might tempt me, even though it looks like a buffet of options that I could have that are set before me. It might be a buffet, but it's a buffet of crap. It's just different varieties, different colors, different consistencies. (laughs) Sorry, but (laughs) God is good. And when you remember this, You can say that, okay, yeah, there's a lot out there that's drawing me, but God is good. It helps you to trust him, to obey him, to follow him. This gives you a power when you know what you are saved to. Now, that might sound great. How do we get that? How are we saved? That sounds great. That's a great future. That's a great destination to get to. How do we get it? How can we experience That What do we have to do to have that? What has to be done? Now, there's a lot of different versions in different thoughts and philosophies and religions of the the prize or the future possibility or the reward. There's a lot of different visions, but in some ways, everybody has the basic idea of how you get it you boil down most of the world's religions, all the world's major religions, if you boil down most major philosophies, and even Christianity wrongly understood, the idea of how you get the prize or the reward is you obey. You do the right things, you get access to the good things. That's essentially what it is, whether that is articulated as heaven or nirvana or enlightenment, Or whatever it is, you do the right things, you live the right way, you follow the particular teacher that lays out the particular path, and if you do those things, you get the good. Christianity is utterly unique, such that it's either false and very insulting, or perhaps maybe it's not made up by men, but is divine because Christianity says this. And here's what Christianity is. It is not just belief in God. It's not just belief in the truth of the Bible. It's not just trying to live a good life and follow the teacher in this case Jesus, to be like Jesus, to do what Jesus did. To love Jesus. To maybe for some of you it's that you think Christianity is going to church and I grew up in church and I've always been a Christian and there are certain activities that Christians do. Maybe read your Bible and pray and be here and all these different things. None of that is actually what Christianity says is how we get the good or the reward or the prize or the ultimate victory or end or heaven or whatever you want to call it. What Christianity says, which is unique across every other religion, is you can't do anything something has to be done for you. You can't obey your way in. You can't follow Jesus well enough. You can't live like him good enough. You can't take the teacher's teaching and obey it, and you did a good job, here you go. Instead, something has to be done for you. That's what it says. But God, here was your condition, but God, and then look how these are all things done to you. But God made us alive. Not asked us if we wanted to be alive. I don't know if you've ever seen someone get the defibrillator thing. At least you've seen it on TV, right? They don't do anything. Something is done to them that gives them life. They were made alive. He raised us. He seated us. You are saved. It's not from yourselves, to be very specific, at the end. He is saying something has to be done to you. Something has to be done for you. That is utterly unique, beautiful, and insulting. That's why every other system claims there is something you can do. Essentially boiled down to live a good way however this teacher articulated it, or this teacher articulated it, or falsely Christianity articulates it. Live good, get good. This says, you're dead, but God. Very different. Something needs to be done for us. This is what theologians also call irresistible grace, meaning when God gives us this grace, when he makes us alive because it is him doing it to us, We can't actually stop it because it's on him. He does it to us. He makes it happen. The core of our identity as a Christian is not what we do, but what's been done for us. The core is not the things that we do, even though those can matter. But it's not the things that we do, but what has been done for us. And this is why... The way that it comes isn't through us, but our union with Christ. God does all these things with Christ. With him, he seated us. With him, we are raised. In Christ, he gave us this grace. In Christ, we are created for good works. Because God does something for us in our relation to him. That's why, again, theologians call this the doctrine of Christ alone. It's only through him. Other religions might teach good things. They might offer good ideas, but you can only be saved through Jesus because it is in connection to him that you get all these benefits. That's why we can't say all religions are basically the same. They're not, because many religions are basically the same. They teach live a good life, but Christianity says you can't live a good life. You need to be connected to Jesus, and connection to him gets you all the things that we just talked about. It is our unification with him. We can't do it. What we can do is receive it, which is why we say it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Faith alone means that you can't do it, but you can trust that he's done it for you. I love, again, the New City Catechism's definition of faith it says faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his word, trusting in him, and I love this part, and also receiving and resting on him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. It is receiving and resting on him alone. Not me, not a little bit of him and a little bit of me. It's receiving what he's done for me and resting in it. That's what faith is. I don't know what your definition of faith is. If it's just, I just believe in Jesus. I believe he's a historical person and existed and died on the cross. Okay, that's part of it, but that's just the facts. It's more than that. It's receiving it. This is for me. And it's resting in it. Thank you. This defines me. This is what makes me who I am. So what power does this give you? How do you know you're okay? Okay. As a person it's like how do you know yeah I'm okay most of the time we base it on something that we do that might be I'm a good friend it might be I'm a kind person it might be I'm a good husband I'm a good father I'm a good mom I'm a good wife I'm a I'm a I'm a good servant person I I do good at my job I I've been successful there's a lot of different things that we can say I know I'm good (sighs) because of this but this gives us a different kind of power because it gives us an identity And a worth that's outside of ourselves. If you base your value, your worth, your I'm okay on what you do, that will lead you to pride if you're doing a good job. Self righteousness. I base my identity on being a good pastor. All these other stupid pastors. That'll lead me to pride. It'll lead you to stress. I base my identity on I am a good mother. And because you're not just trying to be a good mother, but you're trying to get your value and your worth and your identity, it's going to lead to a lot of stress and anxiety. Working, working, working. It can also lead to despair. I base my identity on I'm successful in life. I haven't been very successful. My dad always taught me do a good job, work hard, things will work out. Well, they haven't. I'm a suck, I'm a loser. It leads you to something like that. But when your identity is based in what's been done for you, something you can't earn, something that's freely given to you, that gives you a deep power that gives you thankfulness, that gives you rest, that gives you peace. Last piece. Why? Why are we saved? What's the reason that God does all this stuff? So we, we've looked at the condition of what God saves us from. It's bad. We've looked at what God saves us to, not just burning building, but a palace that he brings us into. We looked at how he does it through Christ alone, him, his work, not ours, but why? Why does he do all this? See, each of these layers of questions are really important, and we go wrong answering so many of these and anytime you go wrong on any of the answers to these questions you lose power. You get a barbed wire fence with no barb or you get some barbs and no connectors or whatever I won't keep going but you lose some of the power of it. Why are we saved? Why did God do all this stuff? Why does he give all this? Why did he come to this earth and die and resurrect and go to the cross and wh- wh- why did he do this? I remember talking to a guy once who had said to me, I finally realized that there must be something so special about me that Jesus would die for me. And I said, you're wrong. And I walked away. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't walk away. We had, a longer, we had a longer conversation. But some think like that. Often we think like that. There must be some great worth in me. There must be some great value in me. There's a, this came out like a decade ago. But um, I, I, I looked it up because I was thinking about it today. There's this viral video that has 10 million views. And it's kind of a spoken word, poetry piece and he says that very idea, and it's, it's trying to come from a Christian perspective, but says, you are so awesome that Jesus died for you. You are so amazing that Jesus died for you. And he's trying to build your self-esteem and encourage you and lift you up, and he's wrong. And it's totally antithetical to the gospel and to what Paul is saying here. It's the exact opposite. What Paul says is not, you are so amazing, so valuable, so beautiful, so wonderful that Jesus died for you. That is not true. What he said, we already read it. You are dead. You are disobedient. You deserve wrath. You are following Satan. You are following the ways of this world. You've rejected and ignored God. That's not beautiful, wonderful, amazing, awesome. That is, you are, pardon my language, you're screwed. But why did he save us? You are saved by grace. He repeats it throughout. Grace means undeserved favor. You are saved because of who he is. You're saved because he is so gracious. Look at how he kind of adds these superlatives. He is rich in mercy. He is great in his love. Immeasurable riches of his grace. Paul speaks like this a lot. I love it because we might say something like, I know God's merciful. No, no, no. He's rich in mercy. I know God loves me. No, he's great in love. I know he's kind to me. I know he's gracious to me. No, his riches of grace are immeasurable. That is why he saved you. That is a very different picture than I'm so awesome. I'm so amazing. I'm so wonderful. Of course he would die for me. In that situation, who's great? You, and of course, it, it's, he is doing the right thing because of course he would have to die for you because of how great you are. This situation is you don't deserve it. That's what grace means. But he is merciful. That leads us not to see how worthy we are, but to see, wow, that's who he is. It says, I am, listen, I'm worse than I think I am. Most of us don't live going around, I deserve God's wrath. I'm worse than I think I am, and he is so much better than I think he is. He's not just a God that says, I'm going to do the right thing today because this person's so awesome, I better go die for them. It's no, he is so much better than we think he is. He's gracious, he's merciful, he's kind, he's loving, he's in all unfathomable ways. That means I'm worse, he's better. That's different. I deserve worse than I think I do, and yet I am loved more than I could ever imagine. I deserve worse than I think I do, but his mercy has given me so much more than I could ever have earned or asked for. Why does he die for us? Why does he save us? It's his grace. This is what we call unconditional election. There's no condition in you that could ever get this. It's his grace that gives it to us. And let me show you this. He will continue to show this to you over and over again. It says he did this so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness. It means God has shown this to you, but it's his plan forever to keep showing it to you, to keep displaying it to you that you would see the glory of God forever because that brings us deep joy forever. It's just not just like this happened. I don't know when you became a Christian. If you're, if you're not a Christian, I hope today's that day. But if you became a Christian a long time ago and you're like, yeah, he showed it to me then. No, his plan is to keep showing this to you forever, to keep displaying it to you because it's endless. The depths of it are endless. And he wants to keep showing, keep reminding, keep you seeing this is what I did for you. This is how much I love you. This is who I am. We see his glory and how amazing he is, which leads which leads to our joy. And so, how does this give us any sort of power? Well, here's the power that it gives. It gives power in two ways. One is it gives you hope for everybody. If it's not based on how great they are, but based on God, God can do this to anybody. He can change every lost case every lost cause, it means nothing to him. It's not based on how great they are, how intelligent they are, how right they are, it's him. So there is hope for everyone. And it gives us humility. This is what he says, so that no one can boast. Because if I know God saved me not because of me, but because of him, how dare I be self-righteous? how dare I think I'm so much better than other people? He specifically says, no, he was doing this in mercy, in grace to show you, you can't boast. It's a gift. I can only say, this wasn't me. He did it. That should lead to deep humility in us where we say, man, I'm not better than anybody. I just, I just know a better God. And I hope you can know him too. That allows us to get rid of self-righteousness. All of these things give so much power. You want power in your life for what God can do to change whatever areas in your life that you need to experience power? More power to change more things than just barbed wire? This is how Christianity offers us salvation, the gospel, the good news of what he's done. Which means this, if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to pray to him today and say, will you do that to me? Will you do that for me? Will you make me alive? I want that. I don't deserve it, but I want that. And if you are a Christian, we might overlook this power that we can access, just like barbed wire. We might overlook it. We might not use it for the humility that we need or for the hope that we need or for the trust that we need or for the resistance to temptation we need or all the different things that I said. We might not use it. We might overlook So today, even as you take communion, we'll take communion in just a moment. Today, consider, where has God brought me from? What has he brought me to? Think about areas in your life where you need his power and think about how the answers to these questions can give some of that power that you need, whether it's hope or trust or confidence or humility. Think about and connect to your life what he's done for you. We take communion every week. If you're a Christian, it's a time that Christians remember Jesus had his body broken for me. He had his blood shed for me. And I need this inside of me. I need this power to become integrated. That's what happens when you eat and drink something. It becomes integrated inside of who you are. That's what we're saying when we take communion. I I need this inside of me because it's a power that gives me life. It's a power that changes me and changes everything around me in ripple effects. And so as you take communion, pray. Confess where you need to confess. Thank God where you need to thank him. Ask him what you need to ask him. God's power is unimaginable. He wants to bring it more into your life. So I'll pray and close us. We'll sing a couple songs in response. I'll be in the back if anyone would like prayer for anything. Healing in your life or some of these things that we've talked about. I know this was long, but it's over. And now you can say, Ha, oh, okay. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you love us in immeasurable ways. I thank you, God, that we could never earn or deserve all that you offer to us, all that you have bought for us. We could never earn it, but you freely give it in Jesus. I thank you, and I pray that you would let these truths, as we take communion and sing, go deeper into our heart. In your name, Jesus. Amen.